Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Hung at Heart, a podcast by me, David Ramos. A recurring segment I'm hoping to have on this podcast is called Gay Icons, where I bring a prominent individual in from our local queer community onto the show and interview them so we can get a glimpse into their lives, not only as an icon, but as a human being, too. Today I'm joined by our first gay icon, David Silver, otherwise known by his alias, Silver Sound. When I reached out to David asking him to join me, he told me that he didn't think of himself as an icon. But I think that David is talented, brilliant, incredible, amazing, show-stopping, spectacular, never the same, totally unique, completely not ever done before, unafraid to reference or not reference, put it in a blender, shit on it, vomit on it, eat it, give birth to it. And if that isn't a recipe for a prolific icon, I don't know what it is. So, David, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you so much for that very sweet introduction. (laughs) I really appreciate it. And I'm so happy to join you for your podcast. Um, Yeah, so I am a DJ. I play music. I make people dance. I try to spread joy through music at all times. I create music myself. I do remixes. And I work at some venues around town, improving the sound quality for people on the dance floor. Okay, awesome. So... How did you get into doing that? Well, it's really been a lifelong journey for me. I mean, I can think back to when I was seven years old and for my birthday, my parents got me a Casio keyboard and a karaoke machine that had a tape deck in it and microphones and with really only the influence of Run DMC's appearance on Reading Rainbow, started writing and recording little rap songs over these Casio beats at seven years old. I still have tapes from that at home somewhere. Maybe one day I'll dig them up. Okay. But um, in middle school, I started learning how to play clarinet, was in the band um, that lasted all the way through high school and college. Um, when I started uh, high school, I also started picking up guitar. I got a tape deck and started songwriting and recording demos in my bedroom. In college, I was doing the same thing except with digital recording. I really got into DJing around that time, first with some digital software, then with an actual pair of Technics turntables that I taught myself to beat match on. Um, After college and learning how to beat match as a DJ, I was ready for my first gigs in public, and that happened in San Francisco, where I lived in the uh, 20-teens, basically the Basically, like the Obama administration bookended my time in San Francisco. So that was a chapter. It was an era, you know, but San Francisco was where I had my first DJ experiences, my first real uh, nightlife experiences as a queer person in the community. Um In 2015, I moved here and continued doing what I was doing and found really wonderful community, um, a really uh, like engaged and interesting scene where you can do a lot of interesting, unique, independent things. Um, And now, after a life of attempting to create music, (laughs) I've finally gotten to the point where I'm proud enough of my own material to release it. So um, I have a new single that I released recently called Impermanence, a new remix for my friend Kelly Moe, a song called Instrument of Nature. And I'm working on more and more and more to just try and uh, fulfill my dream of being um, a person who can actually 
support himself through music and art and community work. Yeah, I love that. I, I had no idea that you were a band kid before. I oh, think yes. We'd like chatted a few times before, but I had no idea that that were your roots because I also play the clarinet um, yes. and the saxophone. I mean, more like formerly used to play it, but still have my clarinet right there. And, you know, every now and again, I'll like break it out and I'll play, but I'll be like, oh, I'm just like not as good as I used to be. And I don't want to put in all the work to get there. And so I will like think about that. But I don't know. I th- that's just such a fun fact. I love that. Um, yes. And envisioning you in like a marching band uniform. So that was 100% me. I was band president my senior year. Such a nerd about it. Um, got really into it. It was definitely like an underdog community in my high school in Houston, Texas. But uh, we can talk more about that later. Right, right. I mean, the mar- marching bands are like prolific in Texas. It's I feel. true. Yeah. Yes. But also, I think it's just interesting given like, I feel like you associate a DJ as being really like chill and cool. And you don't typically think of a band kid like that. So I love sort of that juxtaposition. But yeah, more more on that a little later, hopefully. The so. best DJs are not cool. They're actually nerdy librarians. Okay. I love that. I love yes. that. Um, which so, makes them cool, incidentally. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I'm curious, sort of going back to your alias Silver Sound, um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about like how you came up with that. Where did it come from? My alias has gone through some uh, twists and turns over the years, and it's been a journey that I've really, uh, I, it's really mirrored my own self discovery, and I feel really um, happy in the identity that I've created now with Silver Sound um, as a way to represent myself musically and the the literal sounds that I put out into the world. Um, so my government last name, my father's last name. I don't use, um, but it kind of sounds like Stravinsky. You know, it's got three syllables. It starts with an S and the emphasis is in the middle. Um, When I was living in San Francisco and feeling very inspired by the history of people like Patrick Cowley and Sylvester collaborating to create disco and high energy music, I thought, oh, my last name, Sylvester, you know, there's kind of a similar ring to it. I started going by David Sylvester at that time, which was fun for a while, but I felt like it was a bit artistically pigeonholing at a certain point. It sounds very like happy disco housey. And that didn't necessarily encompass the moods of like darker, deeper, more, um, either abrasive or sensual or, uh, interesting sounds like that. Um, I started going by the prey with an E, uh, as in, you know, the, the object of predators to, um, kind of give myself a more edgy alternative sound after moving to Portland, particularly when I was kind of trying to go deeper in the world of techno. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't really work for me though. It didn't really, it, it feels kind of, it has, it has a bit of like uh, pretension to it, especially with the article, the prey, you know, um, there's some, uh, there are some worlds in electronic music where I think a little bit of artistic pretension is good, but it, eventually it just wasn't really serving me anymore. Um, I came back around to, uh, silver by way of sylvester and just taking out the est and sylvester to get silver and um and now i tell people my name is david silver and my artist name is silver sound 
Okay, I love that. I think it's like, it's interesting hearing you like Sylvester doesn't feel very abrasive because in my head when I hear Sylvester, I think Sue Sylvester from Glee. Uh, <laughs> like she's definitely <laughs> abrasive, but some no. people might think of the Looney Tunes cat, right? you know, uh-huh. but no, it's a reference to Sylvester, the disco singer. Another reason why I ultimately didn't continue to use that name though is because no one told me this, but I realized eventually that I didn't want to um, appropriate the identity of a black queer creator of history, even though my intention was to uh, honor and pay tribute to this person, this performer who's really inspired me because of their life and their experiences that they lived, you know, before I was even born. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's important to me now that uh, Silver Sound feels adaptable to any genre, that it's connected to me as a person, but it's not literally my name that I go by every day. Okay. Yeah. I love that. Um, so you mentioned a few different sort of genres, right? Like a few different places where maybe like some inspiration came from and just like genres that inspired you. What type of music do you DJ? I primarily DJ house music. I love house music. I think it has a buoyancy, a joyfulness, and that's really what I want to bring to the world through music. Um, House music has its roots, of course, in disco, um, particularly New York City. but it was Frankie Knuckles and Ron Hardy, two black gay DJs in Chicago, who really crystallized house music as a genre in the immediate post-disco era in the early 80s by continuing to feed the demand in queer communities, particularly uh, queer communities of color, for danceable music that in the post-disco crash of the early 80s had suddenly gone out of vogue. People weren't making it anymore. So these DJs had to dig in the record crates and find whatever obscure tracks that were fresh that they could continue to play for their DJs. House music evolved from this amalgamation of sounds that um, evolved out of disco. Eventually, local producers in Chicago started creating original music influenced by the music that Ron Hardy and Frankie Knuckles were DJing. Those were the first house music tunes. House then kind of migrated up to Detroit and got twisted into techno. And then it jumped across the Atlantic Ocean to Europe. And there began this sort of cross-cultural exchange between Europe and America that continued to push electronic music forward. Um, through the 80s into the 90s and now it is everywhere you know that's a little history of the genre of uh of house music um i love it because i think it is an important way of preserving all of the struggle that went into that music as like a means for uh, marginalized and oppressed people to gather and experience their themselves authentically in an environment where they're supported by their peers and community and they don't feel the pressure to conform to the outside world. Uh, A question that I have as you're sort of talking about the genre is just something that I've always kind of wondered because I feel like I've recently been doing a lot of like trying to just find different music that's a little bit outside of the realm of like the usual things I have on repeat. What would you say is the difference between house and deep house music? Let me, let me back up and go with the difference between house and techno, because I have a really good answer for that one. House is if you hear a song and a live band of real people playing instruments like drums, guitar, bass, piano, 
vocalists could cover it and it would still sound like that song, it's house music. If it sounds like it could only be reproduced by robots in space from the future, then it's techno. Okay, got it. House is usually um, more upbeat. It has a bit more song structures in it. It's a bit more melodic. Techno will usually be uh, faster, heavier, more electronic sounding, often more abrasive or industrial sounding. House and deep house, um, the difference there is um, basically... uh, it's basically taking taking the the genre of house music and making aesthetic choices around all of the sounds included in the composition that have a a sleekness, a soulfulness, um, not some sort of garish, loud effect that's going to you know rattle everything. Deep deep house is literally like deep in meditation and thought and dance and vibes, you know, it's, it's a real feeling of like immersing yourself into music that is almost only limited by your ability to pay attention to it. Right. Um, yeah. Cause there'd be a lot of times where I would see them on like Apple music or whatever. And I'd be like, what's so deep about it? But that, that definitely helps. Um, I guess, and I don't want to go too far down this tangent, but I can't help but ask just because of something that you just said, how would you then differentiate between deep house and trance? Because I feel like trance in and of itself insinuates a lot of the things you're saying deep house has where you're sort of just like in the moment kind of deep house has had, uh, some, talking about music genres is really tricky because in different places and at different times in history, people can refer to things by very similar names, but mean very different things. Mm. Um, Deep house originally meant that kind of like uh, lush um, uh, ethereal, uh, just kind of like encompassing sound that you feel like you can just get lost in. Um, in the 20 teens, deep house kind of became a buzzword that was applied to a lot of really boring house music that was essentially just like kind of dressed up tech house, basically. Mm. Um, so the, the term deep house has been diluted a little bit um, from its original reference points. But um, I still think of it as really really esoteric music you know it's not music that um is like here's everything you need to know just from you know the first five seconds of hearing it it's music that rewards attention over time and noticing subtle variations in texture and mood and energy over time uh trance music is not a genre that i am an expert in at all um i it's really kind of like there's house and techno and then then there was trance and that's kind of on its own path and you know i'm not really qualified to talk about it okay that makes sense yeah i think as i'm hearing you talk about it it's sort of like pop music is like a slice of pizza and like house music is like a salad with a lot of different elements that maybe you don't pick (laughs) up on how they work well together until you take a specific bite um but anyways i think that's really neat um so 
you mentioned this a little bit earlier and it's like, you know, I already sort of know the answer, but do you, do you also engage in production besides just DJing? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that production has been a more lifelong pursuit of mine than DJing, uh, because I can trace my producing all the way back to that first song that I recorded on tape at age seven, you know, um, then later in high school, I had a four track Tascam tape recorder, uh, where I would, you know, play my acoustic guitar, my electric guitar and do a little keyboard and my little vocal and mix it. And then, you know, put it on my computer and listen to it there. Um, yeah, I, I've been working on creating music for a long time and it's such a deep passion of mine and my standards for myself are so high that I've struggled to finish things and put things out that I'm proud of. But I'm happy to say that now my, uh, my skills and my production and my ambition are all, it it feels like they're all aligning this year. And I'm really grateful about that. Okay, good. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. I remember we, um, had a conversation once where honestly the difference between like DJing and producing, it's sort of gotten lost on me a little bit. And I think just like you putting into the, into this context of like, in its simplest definition, DJing is sort of knowing what song to put next, whereas producing yes. is actually creating. And I sort of was always under this impression that like a DJ set was something that was like largely, and maybe it can be in some situations, but something where it was like, I went through and put together like hours of music ahead of time. And so like you ultimately created one long track, which is kind of what you're doing. I just didn't realize that there was a lot of like in the moment sort of deciding like what's going to be next um, and how it differs from production. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Going back to the history of house music and dance music, you know, it really kind of goes back to disco and the New York scene and what they were doing in the discotheque clubs of that era was there'd be, you know, DJ mixer and then one vinyl turntable and another vinyl turntable. And DJ would be playing a song on one record and then that record would end and then they would play another record. And um, before beat matching, it would be like a song would end, there would be silence and then the new song would start and people would have to jump in on the beat all over again. But when DJs learned how to structure their mixes so that as the last beat of one song ended, the next song began, then it kept the energy of the music continuous and it enabled people to dance better, longer and less awkwardly, you know? Right. Um, so then the blends became tighter and tighter until the songs are literally overlapping each other. You know, yeah. DJing on vinyl is something that I still do, particularly when I play nineties house. Cause that's the format that they were using back in the day. And it's really fun. It's much more challenging than digital DJing because it's, it's analog. There's nothing, there's nothing keeping things quantized. You know, the, the forces of physics of nature are actually working subtly to undermine everything you're doing yeah and i imagine that's like a really like i think from the perspective of like the people who are consuming what you're putting out in a space like that it's a really understated skill that probably takes a lot of developing to be able to to know what song to put next to avoid sort of that silence or the like oh what do i do during this little break the beat's gone and i can't move my hips the way i was two seconds ago so i can imagine that's like a skill that definitely takes developing that people don't frequently think about from like an external perspective yeah yeah it's developing your ear to really perceive the differences uh the similarities and differences between different songs and be able to sequence them in an order where you can blend them seamlessly yeah definitely um you mentioned a little bit ago some stuff that you have produced and released 
recently. Um, I think I'd love to hear a little bit more of like what you have in the works right now, if there's some, or, you know, what you plan to work on in the near future, if you have anything else that you'd like to release um, sometime soon. Definitely. Um, So what I'm really excited about right now is I recently released my song Impermanence, which is an original single that I wrote and mixed myself um, at home with my gear. Um, I had it mastered by um, Hobbs, who's the main sound engineer at Holocene here in town. Um, I worked with my friend Josh Pavlaki on the cover art and um, my friend Lawrence gave me some real tips on the mix down. Um, I'm really proud of this song. It represents uh, really like kind of like a distillation of the house music that I love to play in my own original track. Um, my remix for Kelly Moe for Instrument of Nature has a really similar kind of sound and composition and I'm really excited to be developing this sound as kind of a signature for myself. Um, I also recently put out an EP of bootleg remixes of various pop songs that you know it's not it's on my Bandcamp uh edits page silveredits.bandcamp.com because you know i can't license padam <laughs> unfortunately right. yeah um but i did it anyway so you can check out fun stuff like uh you know there's the remix of padam there's a remix of Aaliyah, are you that somebody there's a remix of um, Missy Elliott, Dorraine. Uh, it's uh, it's a it's a compilation of stuff that I've made over the past eight years or so. So I'm really happy for that to be out in the world now. It's really fun. Um, looking ahead, I definitely have some very close to finished work in the queue. Um, I'm working on sort of finalizing my mixes and then getting them to the mastering stage and then getting them to the art direction stage and then finally releasing them. Um, The thing that I'm looking forward to the most, I would say, is the EP that I recorded with a friend of mine in Los Angeles who has a studio filled with just like the most gear porniest of gear porn like vintage synthesizers and an analog tape recording console all that good stuff so um that is a thing that i'm really excited because it um uses a lot of really cool gear and gets a really cool vintage uh like fuzzy analog sound okay yeah i love that i um speaking of some of the edits that you have up on on Bandcamp, i think they're all really great i will say that the Aaliyah and kylie minogue ones are like Every time I'm at the gym, they're on the playlist. Yes. Um, the the Padam one is like every time I'm doing cardio, it's like this is going to get me through the last seven minutes and 30 some seconds of the run. And it's always really great. So yes. strongly recommend to everyone out there. Thank you. Um, so um, this is also something you touched on kind of briefly, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about like what are your goals? I think like both as a DJ, as a producer, but also just like more broadly, um, if you'd like to share. Definitely. You know, something that strikes me every once in a while is thinking about where I am now and realizing that where I am now is what my goals were like 10 years ago. Um, so what are my goals from here? I mean, I have left the office nine to five world behind at this point. I really want to, you know, just support a humble life for myself, playing music, releasing music and facilitating great sounding experiences in queer nightlife. You know, that is what I've always been passionate about. Um, 
I have a really fun thing to show you, actually. When I was in third grade, at the end of the year, they did a little yearbook thing, and it was a questionnaire of like, what were your favorite parts of the year, um, your favorite projects, et cetera, et cetera. And um, my... There was a question. Let me pull this up real quick. Here we yeah, go. go ahead. <clears throat> okay, so third grade, end of the year, it's like my thoughts about the year. My favorite project was this. My favorite, you know, activity was that. And then there's the question, if I could set up our classroom, I would blank. And here's, you know, seven, eight-year-old David's answer. If I could set up our classroom, I would put in a CD player, a keyboard, a radio, a CD player and a recording studio. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. It's like, I already knew what I wanted at that point. And it's funny that it took me so many years to really lean into that, you know, like it, it took me a long time to have the courage to lean into doing just that and not hold on to some other job that I felt like I had to have, you know, for security. Um, that leaves me in a really unsecure place right now, but, um, you know, I would rather be unsecure and focusing on what I love than working for a job that really doesn't suit me anymore. And my ultimate goal is just to be able to afford a, a kind of, normal Pacific Northwest style life here in Portland, you know, be able to live and support myself and release music and, and share it with the world. Yeah. I'm having all of these like emotions seeing this like thing that you did when you were seven, because a, I think it's just like really sweet. Just envisioning like how little David would feel knowing that you're here at this point in your life right now. And I think that that's like such a sweet concept And I'm also experiencing like a little bit of like humor because I recently came across a similar thing that I did. I think mine, I was in kindergarten, but I wrote that my favorite book was the Bible. (laughs) And now I'm just like, who was I back then? But, you know, anyways, ultimately, I, I think it's really sweet that like that's there's like this testament, this like thing that you have at your home that reminds you that like this is something you've wanted for a really long time and you're finally doing that. Right. And I think that that's just like a really beautiful thing to get to say. Thank you. Um, what would you say is like, cause you, you, you touched a little bit on like, there's, you're not always as secure as maybe you would be if you're working like a nine to five, for example, what would you say is the hardest part of what you do for a living? Actually making money. Okay. <laughs> um, and so you also mentioned leaving like the nine to five life behind and, you know, struggling to like make enough money to, or not, you didn't really say you were struggling, but you know, to live that sort of normal Pacific Northwest middle-class life. Um, do you do, you know, like DJ work full time right now? I, I am, you know, doing my DJ gigs wherever I can get them. And I'd love to play more and more broadly all around the country and around the world. Um, I'm working at the Eagle here in town, as well as back to earth, which are both owned by Dan Henderson, who's done an amazing job with both places. And he sees fit to invest in, um, you know, sound equipment and invest in me Uh, to entrust me to run it and improve the sound in the spaces and make sure that whatever event is happening, that it always sounds really good. Um, A lot of venues don't have that kind of role uh, or can afford to have someone who's got an awareness of sound and can come in and adjust those things. But I'm really proud of my, you know, small little 
slice of the pie of what makes these venues here in town really great. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, we can't afford all the gear that we're working with here today either, but you showed up and you said, we're going to have a good sounding episode <laughs> and here we are and I'm, I'm grateful for it. So I can only imagine the impact that that has in a space where a lot of people are congregating together to enjoy something where the sound plays a really huge role. So a lot um, of people are not consciously aware of how important sound is in the environment, but when it's right, it really, really makes a big difference. Yeah. I feel like when you're at like, like for example, I've seen SZA and Banks live among other people, but two, you know, artists that I really love that I've seen live. And I feel like when you're focusing on like one person is singing on stage, it's a lot easier to be like, Oh, the sound quality in here is kind of rough. But when you're going somewhere and it's a DJ and they're playing house music, which a lot of times, right, it's it's music that I feel like it's easy to listen to for a longer period of time. Whereas if you played All I Want for Christmas is You on repeat for three hours at the Eagle, people would notice and then get tired of it. See, that's the beauty of house music. It's durational. It's a right. different it's a different pace of experience. Yeah. But I also feel like that could maybe sometimes make it so it's a little bit understated in the sense that someone yes. doesn't notice how crucial it was that the sound quality was good when you went to a, a bar or a club where they were playing house music. But when it is, it really makes a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. Like some people, they'll go to a party and be like, that was so banging and so intense and I loved it, you know? And I, the kind of feedback that I come away with from parties that I really like, I'm like, oh, it was the, there was so much depth and detail in the sound and there was so much subtlety and the pacing was really good. It's like, I totally nerd out about that kind of stuff. That sounds like, oh, that's the kind of party you like? That sounds so like organized, but it's not. It's really joyful, you know? Like, sure, it's organized in a certain way, but... Um, the the joyful it's organized to facilitate the joyfulness of the musical presentation right so like going back to like you know your inner and or former child like do you have any sort of like just like dream or like something that's really just like because you're meant you you know you've talked a little bit about some of the goals that you have right and um i'm curious if you have anything that just is like Cause not that it is, but I feel like I, when I describe to people like, what's your dream? Sometimes I'm almost like, oh, I feel kind of stupid saying what it is. Cause it's so such a, you know, like a lot of times when I think about like, oh, I would love to meet Lady Gaga or something like that. Right. Like, do you have any sort of like, I'd love to collaborate with this specific artist or I'd love to have Kylie Minogue release a remix album of Padam and have my remix show up on it. Or I'd love to perform at this specific festival or open a club Right. Like, do you have anything like that that you've ever like thought about doing before? Whether or not it's something you like, I seek to attain it. The concept of it is something you like. Opening a club is such a tantalizing dream because it's like, oh, what if I could control everything? <laughs> then this would be perfect and this would be perfect and this would be perfect. Right. It's such a tantalizing and seductive thought, but the reality is so much more difficult than that. Yeah. And particularly the economic realities, you know, I, I know about that from my time working at No Requests, which was created by a really awesome guy named Dom. And he hired me to manage it and, and facilitate the sound and all that stuff. Um, yeah, it was a good run, but it lasted maybe like a year and a half or so here okay. in Portland. Okay, but like barring the like reality of it all, like opening a club would be like, oh, that'd be so cool. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of times when I'm like working where I'll tell someone like, I'm going to let my inner child out here 
So like I may be saying something that's like completely unrealistic, but like I'm just thinking it, right? Not that you opening a club is completely unrealistic. Just like let's pretend the reasons why maybe this wouldn't work don't exist and just like humor me for a second. So I love the concept of always just like hearing from someone like if you put aside all of the reasons why maybe you think something wouldn't work, what would you love to do? And I would yeah. turn the Ross Island Gravel Company into the Berghine of Portland. <laughs> got it, got it. <laughs> but no, I mean, I love that idea. And obviously, like, I don't know the ins and outs of starting a it club. It even has its own parking lot. Right. <laughs> um, I'm sure it's full of industrial toxic waste. <laughs> right. We could, I'm sure we could do something about it. I mean, it didn't stop them in Berlin after the wall fell. They, they basically, like, squatted in... In East German warehouses and through raves there. Noted, noted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, but yeah, I don't know. It's it's a cool concept, like opening a club and having it be really like tailored and a very specific image and vibe and ambiance and people that are there. It's it's interesting, but I'm sure it is like a ton of work that you can you don't even think of until you actually start to do it. It's a ton of work and money to invest in something like that. And the location where it is matters. And Portland is a great creative interesting city but it's not quite large enough to have the critical mass to support really niche musical endeavors the way that other cities like chicago and san francisco and new york and berlin and london can right right unless it was just like so cool people moved here just for it (laughs) i the 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 community the scene in portland uh that's built around music has I, I mean, I moved here in 2015, you know, so that's my starting point right. with Portland. And I think that it has grown so amazingly. And I think that there's a lot of really healthy activity in the scene. Um, I think that people are doing really good creative things. Uh, I think that um, visibility sort of outside of like silo communities is something that... Um, could be improved, you know, like getting getting the word out about events to more people would be nice, but it's really difficult to do these to do that these days when so much has been kind of atomized and decontextualized through social media platforms. Yeah. Um if uh, if you weren't doing what you were doing for a living, if you weren't a DJ, what would you be doing for a living? That's a a question that I think I've answered for myself in the way that I'm living my life right now, which is that I can't really do anything else. (laughs) I don't feel like I can go back at this point. Um, I I mentioned no requests earlier, and I'm so grateful to Dom for hiring me for that role because it was the first time that I had truly – uh, leaned into nightlife work 100% as my sole source of income. And I realized that even though it can be incredibly difficult, sometimes it's really frustrating. Um, and sometimes, like, you know, egos and stuff come into play. But in general, uh, it was so much more interesting and fulfilling for me to show up and work there than it ever was at an office. And I felt like I was making a positive impact and doing my job just by following my natural inclinations and ideas about what a really great club should look and feel and sound like. Okay. So what if I put it this way? What if like, if you had a clone of yourself 
and like that clone was to get a job that was something other than a DJ. Like, I guess more so like, what would you be doing? Not necessarily out of obligation, but if like mm. there was another sort of career path or just like something that you're like, Oh, that would be kind of fun if I wasn't doing this. You know, if I, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to commit to going back to school, but I do think that being a therapist is something that I would enjoy because I do like talking with people and I want to, uh, I want to be, um, I want to help people and I feel like I have empathy that I can share with people. Definitely. Okay. I love that. I've thought about doing the same. So I love that. That's like an answer. I, I regularly will tell my therapist that I've thought about being a therapist. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I think I, about it a lot. Yeah. He's like, I think you'd be a good one. And, I, and I'm not just saying that. And I'm like, yeah, well, it also just doesn't quite make what I'd want it to make, unfortunately. But sometimes, like you were saying earlier, you have to do what you have to do because it's your passion, right? It just so happens that I enjoy the work that I do. And it also just pays a little bit better than maybe being a therapist would. But I definitely think if I was like unhappy, I would definitely... Um, it's something that I would love to do as well. So I love that. Being a therapist would definitely pay better than being a DJ. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> Noted. Um, what would you say has been one of your favorite moments in your career up until now? Getting a hug from Shade Demir. Okay. And who is Shade Demir? He is one of the most legendary uh, producers and DJs in house music history, originally from Chicago. Uh, he was booked at No Requests a few years back. Um, or, sorry, not a few years back, a few months back. Um, <laughs> no request hasn't even been closed for right. longer than a year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, he played for us. It, he played beautiful, soulful, deep house music, like original deep house music, you know? Mm. Um music that's really like rooted in these like Afro Latin sounds that coalesced in the late disco scene in New York to form the sort of rhythmic foundations of house of house music. Um, after the gig, uh, when, you know, he was waiting for his car to pick him up. Um, it was just like me and a couple other people outside the venue and he gave me a really nice hug and it was so, just simple and nice um and like this is a guy who is responsible for some of the most like hallowed music in house music history and is just it it fills me with warmth thinking about it still oh i love that i'm happy for you yeah um what would you say is different about queer life here versus in San Francisco? I know you mentioned having lived there, start getting some of your work started there. And so I'm just curious, like what we, you would say is the difference between the two. Yeah. San Francisco is such a magical place for me. Living there was like, this is my life. This is my identity. Suddenly nowhere that I had lived before mattered at all. And is like, San Francisco is my home now. This is where I'm from now. Um, the social queer musical intersection that I inhabit in communities um, in San Francisco, what's 
really notable about San Francisco is that there are two really distinct queer neighborhoods in the Castro and Soma south of Market. Soma known for the kinkier, edgier, leather sort of techno party scene and the Castro being the kind of like, you know, mainstream gay scene. Uh, that's a little bit more typical. So I was definitely a Soma gay in <laughs> San Francisco. Um, so you had those gayberhoods where there were geographic centers of gravity for queer people to congregate in. Um, Portland in this era no longer has a, a gayberhood. There's no more Vaseline Alley. A lot of the queer clubs and venues are dispersed in different neighborhoods throughout the city. Um, and a lot of queer events don't take place at queer venues specifically, but at venues that simply just welcome us to come in and queer that space for that night as a verb. And bring our community there and then leave. Um, I think that San Francisco also has a lot more depth and specificity in terms of what people are interested in consuming in nightlife and culture. Um, Portland being a little bit smaller um, in the queer scene, I think that causes the music to bend a little bit more mainstream sometimes. And I like it when there's a lot of depth in a community to explore alternative and underground sounds. That definitely does exist here in Portland. I'm not saying it doesn't, and there are people who do it really, really well. But um, ultimately, the sort of overall population of a city is the key critical factor in whether there's enough density to support really niche-specific, interesting scenes. So uh, there's like a few things that I feel like come up with that. The first is just like a, a clarifying, like for my mind, I've only been to San Francisco like a, a, f a handful of different times, but Soma is like where the Eagle and like powerhouse yes. is. Okay. Got it. And the former stud and close to Mr. S leathers. Yes. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Um, and then I think another thing, uh, there was something else that you touched on regarding nightlife being different. Um, maybe it'll come to me in a second, but, oh, I think it, it was just regarding, Portland not having a gayberhood. Right. I think that's like a common thing that I talk about a lot when I go visit other places where like I was just in Seattle and I was on Capitol Hill, right? And that's like one of like two mm -hmm. gayberhoods in the Seattle area. And it's always interesting to me because it's like Portland doesn't really have one. And a lot of times I wish that we did in like a lot of ways, right? Like it's like mm -hmm. when I was up on Capitol Hill, I was like, oh, I feel like you could just like live your whole life in this little part of town. Portland's not really like that. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people, right? Like we have good, decent public transit and stuff like, like it's definitely better than a lot of other cities, yes. but like it still feels like it's like you need a car to like get up to the Eagle. It's not like it so happens that there's like a big congregation of gay bars in one area or where all the gays live. And you kind of feel like you can live in your community in one space. And so mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that like Portland doesn't have one. And I think sometimes people who live in cities that do have gayberhoods have told me like, eh, like it, it has its cons in some ways you, I could see appreciating living in a city that like doesn't have one. And I just think that's like a really fascinating thing that you're like bringing up. And, yeah. Um, I'm Every sure bubble has its pros and cons. Right. Um, Portland used to have a gayberhood on Stark street where, um, What's the bar that's still Scandals. There? Scandals, where mm. Scandals is. Um, that street used to be, you know, side by side, just mm. queer businesses going full bore, you know. But um, I, I'm not an expert on the reasons for why it's been dispersed, but it's a topic worth looking into. Yeah, it's also um, interesting because I think sometimes people will say like, well, there's no gayberhood in Portland because the whole city is just kind of queer. 
like every bar you go into has like a pride flag right it just feels like it's like the whole city is kind of like that and i mean it's an interesting take on why there's not a gayborhood it's an interesting it's an interesting take in that i think it leads to not very interesting communities right (laughs) Right. that's a hot take yeah it is (laughs) um but we live for those here um so uh, going back to sort of you know bring it back a little bit to like the work that you do. Do you feel like working in nightlife? Obviously mostly just because, I mean, I'm sure there's other reasons, but I'm thinking about it from the perspective of like the hours that you find yourself at work. Do you feel like working in nightlife poses challenges for the rest of your life? It does. I've always been a night owl. So in a lot of ways, nightlife work suits me very well. Um, I remember reading a study about, um, chronotypes that said that people with late chronotypes suffer all these negative consequences as a result of, you know, not enjoying waking up early. And then later down in the article, it says there weren't any negative consequences for people with later chronotypes who were not forced to conform to an early rising schedule. Mm. So I think I want to like, I want to arrange my life so that I don't have to wake up early because I've never loved that. Same. And, you know, it's like, just live with like what's natural for you, you know? And it's like, why should, why should, you know, we have to fit ourselves into those societal boxes? You know, it's like, there are so many (laughs) boxes and rigid rules to, to deconstruct from, from chronotypes to gender, you know? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like I always get like, I always like that question will come up. Like, do you prefer being up at night or in the morning? And I'm like, I tend to be more of a night owl, but I love getting up at five in the morning and having a lot of things done by eight. As long as I went to bed early the night before and that never happened. Therefore, (laughs) I hate getting up early in the morning or there's times where like someone will call me at work and it'll be like before 10 a.m. And one time someone was like, I know you hate like, you know, being bothered in the morning. And I was like, okay, yes, but I'm a professional and I'm here and I'll do it. Like these are the working hours here. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I'm definitely not a morning person either. So, um, do you view DJing as like also being a performer? Like, do you consider DJs to be sort of performers in the sense that like, they're sort of like the center of attention. Like everyone's looking up at the DJ while they're like partying. Or do you prefer for the DJ to be a little bit more of a like incredibly important, but perhaps understated role in the sense that like, they're not like front and center in like a nightlife space. Yeah. One of the things that I really like about DJing is that it's a way to be very involved in the party and be in the middle of the party, but to actually be like, Oh, no one, no one talked to me. Like I'm doing my own thing. You know, like it's actually a very introspective kind of introverted activity. It you're doing it right in front of people. But, um, I really find that my best DJ sets happen when I'm following my own intuition and it connects with the crowd. You know, I, for, for me, I never try to, um, like I, the idea of like a superstar DJ is very unappealing to me. I think that DJing is, um, you know, so the way that I like to do it is, not as the focal point of of like where people's attention is with their eyes but i do want people to be paying attention with their ears so when you're djing with a dance floor it's this 
really interesting form of communication where you are very directly influencing the moods and feelings and motions of a big group of people, but in this very indirect, subtle way. Right. I'm just like envisioning in my head, like the concept of like, uh, I was going to ask, does it make you nervous when people are looking at you while like, if you feel like there's a lot of people looking at you when you're DJing and then I was kind of envisioning, like, I imagine that would kind of feel like when you, <laughs> when people are singing you happy birthday and you're kind of like, <laughs> what do I do besides just like sit here and look around? I was like, what are you expecting me to do? Like flip a vinyl in the air and like you know, do like a crazy trick or something when someone's just like watching the DJ. Right. right. I'll occasionally look over, but yeah, I guess now that I'm like thinking about it when I'm in nightlife spaces, um, I'm not ever like looking at the DJ the whole time. The thing about dance floors is that you're supposed to be in community with the people around you, you know, uh, instead of everybody facing the same direction, looking at the DJ. I think that a sign of a healthy dance floor is when people are, facing each other on the dance floor right. and engaging with each other. And the music is an immersive surrounding thing that is kind of setting the pace for everyone in this almost cheerleading kind of way, you know, to get everybody having fun and in motion and engaging with other people or engaging with themselves internally. You know, if they're just dancing by themselves, that's totally fine too. Um, yeah. It's, it's not about like, me, me, me. It's about how do I give this crowd not what they think they want, but what they need for <laughs> an experience that is uh, transcendent. Right. Okay. Um, is it ever okay to make a request of a DJ? No. <laughs> noted noted unless it's invited okay. you know there's a time and a place for everything i believe very strongly in that whether it's you know like a genre of music or you know uh, an attitude whatever um when it comes to djing for the type of djing that i do which is presented in a dance club why is it called a club? Clubs aren't for everybody. You know, if you love country music, don't show up to the house club and right. expect to hear country. It's a house music club night because it's a club for people who like house music. You know, do your research and know what kind of party environment you're going into. You know, mm -hmm. if you find yourself in a hard techno party and you want to request Rihanna and the DJ doesn't play it. That's your fault because you put yourself in a techno party that you had no business being at because that's not your taste. It's just not for you. And that's right. fine. You know, like go to the place where they will play Rihanna without you having to ask for it. It's kind of interesting hearing you bring that up because when I was in Europe earlier this year, there was a lot of clubs I would go to where you had to pay a membership fee. Like it was like, oh, it's just like five dollars, but we need you to like sign up to like be a member and then you can access the club. So you sort of putting into perspective like a club is not meant for everybody is sort of is like, oh, it's making a lot of sense based off the way like it was kind of structured in some places that I visited. Well, the history of nightclubs and discos in particular, it goes back again to the queer uh, black and brown disco dance music scene in New York City in the 70s. These nightclubs were often specifically queer spaces by and for queer people of different types to uh, find authenticity and express their authentic selves 
in a place where they were free from judgment from the outside world. So it really is meant to be a safe space and a refuge for people who cannot find validation and affirmation of their authentic selves in the outside world. That's really beautiful. (laughs) Um, So uh, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about like the economics of nightlife? I feel like I have like, we've chatted before and you've given me a little bit of a glimpse into it, but I feel like I have no semblance regarding like who books who and who makes money off of what. And I would just love to hear a little bit more about that. If you would share, I'd be happy to, it's definitely complicated and it's definitely varied from place to place. But I think one thing that's really important for people in general to know is that most of the time, if you're going to, you know, DJ party at venue, um, The venue is keeping the money that you're spending at the bar on alcohol. The promoter of the event is keeping the money that you pay for the ticket or that you pay at the door. Those things don't usually overlap. Um, So that's why it's really important to support cover fees for events and not complain that, you know, oh, I have to pay $10 at the door for this event. And then you go inside and you spend $50 at the bar. You just spent $50 on alcohol for yourself and none of that is going to the party. You know what I mean? Right. So DJs, uh, promoters, performers usually get just a flat fee, which the promoter will pay them based on the door proceeds. And if there's anything left over, then the promoter gets to pay themselves. So the the bar doesn't pay the DJ, the promoter does. Unless the bar is also the promoter, but which happens in okay, got it. That's really interesting. Um I feel like something you said triggered like a question me about um oh, is there a a lot of times when I go to events, there's like a well, events specifically at the Eagle, there'll be like there's a cover, but if you come in the uniform for that day, the cover is free. Is there some like I as someone who like I'm not rich, but like I make a decent living. Is there some degree of like, oh, I should still just like pay the cover because it's going to support a good cause. I can afford to pay the cover even if I'm showing up in the uniform. Like, is that a thing that like someone who maybe has the means could think about in like, or does it just feel like it's, yeah, I guess I don't. Supporting local nightlife with mm-hmm. money in any way is always going to be awesome. Okay. You know, like there's, there's never a reason not to do that. Okay. Um, and that also extends to, you know, don't just stream artists that you like on Spotify, buy music from them directly on Bandcamp because Spotify pays essentially $0 per stream. And uh, Bandcamp takes about 20% on most days and the rest goes directly to the artist much, much faster than through services like Spotify. So um, yeah, direct merch and payments and stuff like that is really important for independent artists in all places. And I think it's also really great to, you know, mindfully support your local businesses because the people who are working there are, you know, they're queer people like us who are, you know, they're, they're creating the spaces for us to go to and it's our privilege to, to go there and enjoy it. You know, um, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be there if it weren't for, you know, the slow days when it's like there's the door person and the bartender and the bar back and the DJ and, you know, there's and there's not many other people there, you know, right. it's like um, 
uh, and cover at the Eagle, the, the Eagle, you know, since, since I work there, I know in, internally, like the, the Eagle events are mainly self-produced and promoted via Dan, you know? So, um, the, the door, the, the entry fee, you know, for, for the bar, um, is, uh, is is important because you know it um it does support the the artists in the bar but um the eagle is one of those rare cases where um the bar is paying djs directly okay. and i'm really grateful to dan again i keep shouting him out but he really is uh you know i think just making a really great um he's, he's making really great decisions about the places and i'm really proud to to be part of it yeah, I mean, even if the Eagle's an instance where, like, the promoter and the bar are, like, the same situation, right? It's still, like, it's still helpful to hear about the delineation of who is making money from what, right? Yeah. Because, like, you go somewhere and you think something like, oh, like, there's no cover if I come in this, right? Maybe at the Eagle it's a little bit different, but there's other spaces where it could still be, like, oh, yeah, that could be an option. But, like, the person who's making money from this is not the same person who's making money from that. Right. And so even though I have the option of, like, getting in for free, if I have the means and i intended to pay when i got here might as well just you know do it to support multiple different entities so i yeah. love that 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 context yeah yeah i mean if you're on the guest list because the promoter put you on the guest list then you know that's great uh you know show up like you you if you pay because you can that is phenomenal but you know if not just like tip everybody else a whole lot you know yeah yeah <laughs> Um, so my, my last question sort of on this section that I have for you is what makes a good sound system and why is it so important for a good night out? We can go so deep in this, you know, and it's definitely one of my favorite topics, but what makes a good sound system? Um, you need power, mm. you need, um, detail, you know, um, you need, um, you need to not overload the sound system and try to make it do more than it can. Um, having the right kind of speakers, particularly for bass, is really important for dance music because low end works in really particular ways that, you know, technically it's like if it's not there, it's not there. You can't do anything about it, you know. Um, when a sound system isn't good, People might not realize it consciously, but subconsciously, it really takes a toll. Your ears might be ringing because the sound system is louder and more shrill. You know, um, certain frequencies might stick out in a painful way. Uh, that's really unappealing. You might hear really loud, boomy bass in some places and no bass in other places because there are standing waves and phase cancellation happening in the space. Um, having a good sounding room that fits the sound system is as important as having a good sound system because you don't just listen to a sound system in a vacuum. You listen to a sound system in the room that it's installed in. So being able to have all those elements work together with the physics of sound is incredibly important. Yeah. I mean, that explains why when I'm at the gym and I'm listening to music in my AirPods, like it just doesn't, it doesn't hit the same. And I'll like, I'll try to change the, the EQ. Uh -huh. So I'm like, maybe this will make it sound a little different. No, it's like the same thing with like, I'm trying to make the AirPods do more than they're capable of doing sometimes. Um, but okay. That's, that's really great context. And, um, 
I'm glad to learn a little bit more about what makes a good sound system. As a DJ, one of my favorite DJ friends, um, Colin Bass, he said, um, the, be- the most important part of being a DJ is being a good steward of the sound system that you're given. Mm. That means that even if you're given a total shit sound system, you know, play music that sounds good on that sound system and take care to make that system sound as good as it can. Yeah. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> I, a second ago when you were talking about Spotify, I was looking into the camera and I thought it was funny because there's so many times in my like normal social life when someone will say something that I think is like absurd and I'll be like, oh, I'm looking into the camera right now. Uh-huh. Like, you know, breaking the fourth wall and it's funny because I can actually do that here. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think we can uh, take a little break and we'll be right back. That sounds great. Thanks. Awesome. Um, so I have a few questions that I want to ask. I think, you know, I've, I've had a chance to ask you a few questions about the work that you're sort of currently doing. Right. And so I think I want to learn or hear a little bit more about the history of it, like what your inspiration is behind some of the work that you do. And so going back a little bit to some different places that you've lived and sort of where you got your start as a DJ, how would you say that San Francisco inspired you both musically and culturally? Yeah. Um, I actually can go back a little bit farther because during college, I did a year abroad in Munich and it was 2006 and 2007 and minimal techno was having a resurgence in Germany at that time. And I actually had some of my very first real proper quality clubbing experiences in Munich at that time. Um, In general, my time in Europe was kind of self-limited because I didn't have the kind of confidence and capacity that I've developed now to go off and explore new places. Um, and I still struggle with that. But, um, when I moved to San Francisco, I was like, Oh, this is like a, the vibe that I felt in the German club, but here in California with hot gay dudes everywhere. (laughs) Um, San Francisco is so magical to me. It really revealed to me like the magic of gay identity and queerness. Um, It revealed the political nature of queerness and of music and nightlife to me. Um, It put me in touch with people who found me attractive and I found them attractive. That reciprocal attraction was something that I had never really experienced before because I was never in a place that gave it to me. Um, The sound of San Francisco is known so much for disco and high energy music back from the seventies and eighties. But it's also always had a really strong um, rooting in house music ever since the 90s. And particularly deep house music um, on the West Coast really seems to thrive. Uh, Yeah, San Francisco is a magical place that uh, is unlike any other place I've, I've been to. I definitely think it's pretty magical every time I visit it too. I've definitely been like, oh, if I moved somewhere, I'd probably be there. I would love to be able to move back there, but I don't think I ever will. Also, this isn't to say that San Francisco is free from problems, just like Portland isn't free from problems, just like any place is not free from problems, you know. But um, yeah, that's that's life. There's the good and the bad all layered right on top of each other, and we have to sort it out somehow. Yeah, I feel like a lot of times I'm just like, I think I'd rather live somewhere where I can like 
live alone in a nicer place and then be able to afford to travel to these other places than like live in San Francisco and have like five roommates mm-hmm. and like a really crappy apartment that's falling apart, which I feel like is probably more of a stereotype than is actually what is actually what most people are living in. But mm-hmm. I could be wrong. I, I think, you know, it's 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 like the Internet, you know, if you can think it, it exists. Right. That's true. Um, I also just imagine there's probably like, I don't know, stricter regulations among like if you're going to be a landlord, you have to keep your building in like this condition. And I feel like maybe that wasn't the case 10, 20, 30 years ago. And so that's sort of where the stereotype of living in like, not to say that people are living in these like wonderful places, but this concept of like your place is just a complete shithole. I feel like it's like, (laughs) well, now there's like laws that prevent it, but I'm sure there's still cases that are. There's a lot of San Francisco particular politics regarding housing and rent control and stuff like that. And I have no, uh, real knowledge of it but um you know i want there to be housing for people who need it like that should just be a, a basic fundamental thing right this, <laughs> this is sounding a lot like an npr segment right uh-huh. now um so one thing sort of going back to you talking about like minimal techno and Munich and San Francisco is like one thing that I find really fascinating about music that I've never really been able to like eloquently speak to, but I like follow people on different social media platforms who talk about music in terms of like, Oh, this is so, you know, Detroit coded or something, right? Like they say things like that. And so it's always been really interesting to me that there's a lot of regional specificity in underground music. Um, And so I would just be curious to hear like, do you, what do you think about that? And do you feel that Portland has developed its own musical identity? I think Portland's musical identity that developed in the sort of early 2000s, the first two decades of the 2000s, was kind of centered around this Portlandia, indie rock, you know, kind of vibe, um, which isn't very house or techno, you know. Um, I think that nowadays... Uh, because of the connectivity of the internet and digital communications, instead of geographic scenes, we get scenes that are unified and aesthetic, but dispersed geographically wherever they may be. You know, um, I think that that's a really interesting change in how we communicate and create culture. Um, I think that it means uh, it, 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 we are giving up something, you know, with the loss of like some regional specificity in what kind of sounds are popular. You know, I, I think that, um, nowadays, you know, you might go to a vaporwave party in Miami or in Berlin or in Seattle, and they'll probably all sound pretty similar. You know, the good news is they'll all be, you know, pulling in different local, hopefully local talents and, and, you know, slight variations, but, um, you know, I think, I think that genre is the new geography. Wow. That's really insightful. And definitely like something interesting to think about that I'd never really thought about before is how like advancement of technology makes it. So it's like before when technology wasn't as widely available, sounds would be really different in different parts of the country, Mm -hmm. different parts of the world, because it was harder to access what it was like in other places. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah. I also think that because the uh, evolution of genres have become so splintered and so niche with the ability for, you know, I talked about that sort of critical mass of people in a city being necessary for there to be, you know, really specific events in a city. 
as soon as you give up that geography, then the similarly minded people in the world can find and connect with each other online. So scenes become global and united around certain aesthetic choices. And these days that involves music and video and memes and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, Going back to Portland and dance music, um, I do think that Portland has developed a bit of a, a signature reputation for dance music that is um, accessible but a little bit weird, you know, like uh, invitingly psychedelic, perhaps, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that people here like uh, stuff that. Um, pulls them in but gives them a little tingle of something weird along with it okay yeah i love that but that being said it's also true that you know portland has like it's hard techno renegades and it's like disco revivals and it's like straight up house music parties and you know i i think that um again it's it's less of like a we're all at the same party because of geography. And I think it's more like we are aficionados of this aesthetic of this style and we want to group together and make it happen. Yeah. That is so interesting to me. Uh, Do you feel like you bring elements of your upbringing and places that you've lived um, into the music that you create today? I think uh, Germany and San Francisco are the two places I've lived that uh, translate through my music. Um, Nowhere else that I lived had a connection to dance music like that. So, um, yeah, I think I think that uh, what I'm developing for my own sound as a producer now incorporates a lot of specific house music tropes there's um the 909 drum machine that um is iconic for all house music drums essentially um there's uh my juno 106 analog synthesizer which i love the most and that's beautiful for like whooshing electronic pads and washes and stuff like that um I love using uh, like a 303 acid line for a bass line, but I also love using a re-space, um, which is a really weird phasing kind of um, like dark sound. And that's really useful for contrast, especially for for like a really big drop that is going to contrast sharply with what came before it. Um yeah, those those are the elements that I am really interested in using right now. A lot of a lot of stuff borrowed from UKG, UK Garage um, style. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of uh, I, I'd say my sound is is very house, um, and uh, you know you know it when you hear it. Mm. Have you ever? Created or produced, whether in like a formal or an informal sense, something that is like, um, because you mentioned like creating a baseline and you have like a software, like a machine that you use to create it. Have you ever like thought about, or is there any appeal to like you bring in like an actual like bassist and you're like, let's create the baseline here instead of on like a machine? Not that I think one's better than the other, I'm just curious, right? Yeah, I I mean, collaborating with people is fun, but um, you know, there I think the thing about electronic music that is 
appealing to me is I can be in my basement at 4 a.m. in my headphones making a track. Right. You know, I I think that um, as a very ADHD person trying to overcome perfectionism, the ability for me to create um, at a moment's notice is really important for me to get mm. things done. So if the inspiration is there, I want to follow it immediately. Yeah. And sometimes that means later I'd, I'd want to like, okay, I have this idea and later I'm going to translate it into something. But another way that I've tried to overcome my perfectionism in production is by just moving faster and finishing things quickly after I start them <laughs> instead of letting them linger. Yeah. I think I was just thinking about like, well, first of all, regarding the ADHD thing, that's why like 24 hour fitness is really helpful mm-hmm. because it's like, oh, I got the inclination to work out at two in the morning. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, I feel like I'm a little more consistent about it now, but I definitely remember being like, I want to be able to have access to the gym 24 hours a day because sometimes it just comes at three in the morning. You're like, I got to go on a run. Um, and then I think regarding like my question about like the bassist, I was sort of thinking about like, my best friend growing up, his name is Tim and he was a bass player. And I was sort of just like, I was thinking about what I think is the baseline in impermanence. That's like, dun, 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 dun. And I was sort yep. of envisioning like an actual bassist and how like, Oh my God, I, I can see someone with like an actual bass playing that. And I mm-hmm. hadn't, sometimes when I listen to electronic music, I don't bring it back to envisioning like what it would be like if like an actual, but that was something you mentioned earlier. That's, that's house music. Right. Right. Yeah. See if it was, if it was, if it was techno and it was like so fast and manipulated that, you know, there's, there's, um, you know, it is just like totally from outer space, you right. know, that then, then, then it's probably techno. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's so, I mean, two and two is really coming together for me right now. Yeah. Like a light bulb above my head. I love it. Um, and I think that segues into sort of the other question that I had, just like going back to your single and permanence that you released recently. Um, what is your creative process for whether DJing or producing and more specifically when it comes to impermanence, what was your inspiration for, for that work? Uh, let's talk about impermanence and creating that track. Cause that's a really great kind of how to lesson in production. Yeah. Um, to make that track, I started by turning on my drum machine with the nine Oh nine drum sounds, the classic house music drums and just getting a beat going with that. I did a, a jam session on the drum machine and I just played with the knobs and got different sounds in real time, you know, playing it as emotively uh, as I could, like a real instrument. Um, then I took that jam session on the drum machine and cut it up and rearranged it and built the drum track from those clips. Uh, then I did the bass line on the micro core. That's the dun, 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 dun. Um, I did a few passes of that focusing on giving a change in timbre over time. So it starts very sort of tight and plucked at the beginning of a phrase. And then by the end of a phrase, it might sound really long and sort of buzzy and, and full of energy, you know? Um, so manipulating those controls in real time gives a real human feel, even though it's 
basically playing the same, you know, baseline sequence over and over again, Mm -hmm. as far as the notes are concerned. Um, Then I did a bit of live playing on my synthesizer. I got some sort of sound effects, some, some, you know, pretty chords that just kind of hold in the background and filter sweeps that bring them up and down into your perception. Um, I cut up all those bits and arranged them into the song also. Um, And then the final element was that uh, phasing, sort of ravey sounding, uh, really powerful, deep Reese bass line, which is named for uh, Kevin Saunderson, by the way, uh, a a techno pioneer from Detroit. Um, So once I had all those elements composed in the computer and I captured all the audio in the computer, then it was a matter of building a song structure that, um, you know, works in the genre of house music and that contains structures that enable a DJ to blend that song with other similar songs. Um, the, the composition of the beginning and end of house and techno music is really important, not because it is supposed to be complicated or hooky, but because it's supposed to interlock with the song that's coming before and after. Um, so once everything was arranged as a song, then I focused on refining the mix to make the sound as cl- as clear and as perfect as I could get it. Once that was done, I created a mix down from that and sent that on to my mastering engineer who added volume. And it's kind of like zooming in on the audio so that all of that detail pops out no matter what system you're listening to it on. Once I did that, it was ready for art and release date. For birth. Yeah. Um, So I think like two sort of follow-up questions I have on the creative process. The first is like a little bit more regarding like, do you have like scheduled times that you like to sit down and try and do work? Is it something that you're like, I'm feeling inspired. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to cancel some plans, right? Because I'm really in the zone. And I, right? Sometimes you have with ADHD, you have to ride the wave, right? Because then you risk like I didn't write it and now I like don't feel the inspiration for God knows how long. And then the second question is like, do you always start from the bottom up? And by the bottom, I mean like the drum or sometimes do you just have a little like, ooh, that little sound effect I kind of like and now I'm sort of like, then you sort of work your way down, right? Is it always like one sort of direction in terms of building a song? Uh, second question first, the, the song can sort of originate in any place, but the first question, I totally have to surf that ADHD wave. You know, I just, it is so hard for me to stick to a schedule of creativity, um, all by myself. You know, it's, it's easier if I'm meeting with someone else to collaborate, but, uh, usually I just, Right, right now, I have been producing original work less because I have a lot of work that is mostly finished, and I need to take that mostly finished work and make it completely finished. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, more ahead of the game in that regard than I ever have been before. So I'm really happy about that. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's important for me to. Um, it's important for me to have my studio gear set up and plugged in all the time so that when that moment of inspiration strikes, I can move there and sit down and turn things on and get to playing 
without having to plug things in and test things to make them work because that is the ultimate creativity killer or you know boner killer if you're if you're filming for only fans it's like yeah let's do this oh wait we got to set up the camera make right. sure the lighting's good and oh i'm li- missing my plug for my phone you know blah 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 um it's that that kind of thing is like oh i need to connect the midi cable and i need to do this and that you know it's just like it's so nice when everything's just set up and ready to go yeah, I mean, and I feel like a lot of this is so interesting to me because having also been a band kid, like I used to have a lot of interest in like, I would love to be a composer one day. And I have a lot of like really random one-off like voice memos or videos in my phone where like, I don't know, I like smoked weed or something and I was like humming this thing that I was like, I feel like this is like an original melody that's kind of cool in my head right now. Let me like capture it because I know I'm not going to get up and do anything about it right now, but maybe there'll be some time when I actually like put this like little melody thing that I was humming to use. I have Um, literally (laughs) done exactly that when I was high. I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm stoned. And this baseline would be really cool. You know? And I don't think I've ever actually gone back and used (laughs) something (laughs) like that in an actual song. Unfortunately, Um, I do keep a, uh, 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 like a, it's like a reminders list on my phone or a notes list on my phone of just random ideas that I do have about production. And sometimes I'll look at that, but, um, these days I have to say like just sitting down with the instruments and playing physical instruments is the most inspiring thing for me trying to produce music entirely inside a computer screen is not super satisfying when it comes to creating something brand brand new Mm. yeah okay um so uh, another sort of facet of being a dj that i feel like i'm sort of thinking about and want to hear more from you about is sort of the element of a dj as a public persona in a community I like, I definitely think of myself as a public persona, though you didn't think of yourself as an icon and you definitely are. So maybe I am a public persona. But one thing that I have done in the public, I think like there's some facets in like my work where there's a little bit of thinking about how I show up in spaces, but sort of in a space that feels a little bit more intersecting with what we're talking about here is like I've go go danced a few times at a few events in town. And one thing I've noticed, even just in those few instances, is how doing something like that and being in a nightlife space as like a persona as opposed to just like another person who's like attending that night can sort of complicate your interpersonal relationships with people, especially in a community as small as Portland, where you see the same people at a lot of those things. You're sort of tasked with making yourself available to the people who are there. And as a go-go dancer specifically, like you're kind of signing up to like be objectified and whether it's because it's your job to be, or because it's like, you kind of have to be to like get tipped or whatever, which is such a weird way to, to think about it. But like, you kind of have to make yourself available and be flirtatious with people. And like, that's the kind of right. You can't be like, Oh no, like I'm not into that person. I'm not going to like keep dancing when they come up. Right. Like, it's just not a thing that you do. And so I think I've had instances where because of that, like someone will like hit me up on grinder or something. And because of an interaction that I had when I was go-go dancing and there's sort of this like clear interest on their part and maybe it's like not reciprocated, right? Which hasn't always been the case. Sometimes it is, but there are instances when it's like, oh, I'm suddenly in this position where I'm having to reconcile with the fact that like one, 
I was only really entertaining someone's flirting because it was my job to do that or because I, I was at work and you right? it's sort of like when you think about like, don't flirt with like a service worker. Like they have to be nice to you. Like don't put them in that weird predicament. And then two, like needing to just actually do the communicating of like, Oh, I'm not actually interested. And then it's like, well, you were being really flirty like the other night. And then it's just, it almost feels, I don't want to say that it is, but it almost feels kind of fucked up to be like, well, I was just doing that because that's my job and I was trying to get tips and like make money. And so it's kind of a weird thing. And so I'm curious to hear if like you as a DJ have ever been put in a similar situation where maybe like you felt like you needed to put on sort of a specific persona or be friendly to everyone in a space because you were the DJ. And maybe there's a responsibility of being sort of neutral in that sense. And maybe your kindness was later misinterpreted as like sexual or romantic interest. I think it all boils down to consent for me and a lot of people out in the world still have to work on themselves with regards to consent. Um, It's really important that uh, we are always asking permission in real time um, when we're engaging with somebody new, when we're engaging with somebody in public, um, nudity and or clothing or lack thereof is not an open invitation to touch anybody or, or anything like that. Um, I think that, uh, you know, in, in my nightlife world, in my DJ world where people talk a lot about, harm reduction, um, and, and stuff like that. I think the awareness of consent is really, really strong. Um, but some of like more mainstream gay, uh, spaces haven't really had that wake up call yet. Um, and, you know, sometimes it arrives in, in different waves or, you know, different people and different, uh, generations have different approaches to it. Um, what, what matters to me right now is that, um, that people just like don't act physically without asking first. Right. <laughs> I, I think, um, I think that in general, when it comes to sex and relationships, uh, our whole society needs to do a lot of dismantling of the tendency to create expectations, um, creating an idea in our head of this will be this way. And if I do this, I will get this attention for it or this reward for it. Um, it's, it's something I think culturally that needs to shift in a really broad radical way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that we have that kind of cultural sensitivity, um, awakening. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's a really important dynamic. Like I remember, I think the first time I ever went to like an event that you were DJing at, it was at the Eagle. And I remember seeing you and being like, Oh, I kind of want to flirt with him, but like he's at work. And that's important to me that like, there's no dynamic of like, oh, they feel like they have to be nice or friendly, right? Or even in like a non-flirtatious way, like when it's just like my platonic friends, it's like, I'm not showing up to your workplace 
and expecting you to be any different toward me because right now you're at work and there's a really important dynamic that needs to be had there. Um, and so I guess I just was curious like how that sort of works because as a go-go dancer, I've had that experience and obviously the consent thing, you know, goes across everything but i do think that like in terms of like someone comes up to and they're being flirtatious maybe it's a little bit different when like your job is literally to like be there and be kind of sexy and stuff whereas like the dj is not inherently that it just so happens that in your case you also do that even though that's not your job right (laughs) it's it's true i do do that when i show up to the eagle i mean there's a reason why i show up wearing leather and then take it off you know (laughs) right right but consent is always important above all yeah yeah the reason why i do that is because it's fun for me And because it's fun for me to show up in that space that way, you know, the Eagle is a place which is, you know, it is an aesthetic dated, uh, uh, the, the aesthetic of the Eagle is, um, dedicated to masculinity in, I don't want to say a traditional sense, but in a gay male sense. I think that anyone who walks through the door of the Eagle finds a welcoming place there. And I hope that they do. And if anyone shows up to the Eagle and they don't find that welcoming space there, then they should talk to someone on the staff about it and they'll fix it, you know? Right. But, um, in general, like if you're showing up with, with respect for the space and the people who want to enjoy that aesthetic, then you're welcome, you know? Um, but being in a sexualized uh, gay space doesn't waive the need for consent in every interaction. Definitely. Do you ever feel like people treat you differently at an event because you are the DJ? Or like when you show up to an event as like an attendee and not as the DJ, like you're received differently? No, not not really. I you know, I, I talked earlier about how DJing isn't necessarily a super like, look at me, I'm in the spotlight kind of thing. For some DJs, it, it might be. And that is, you know, that has more to do with style and personal taste than anything else, really. Right. Um, but for me, uh, you know, I, I hope ultimately that what I do is something that I enjoy, something that enables me to survive in the world and something that enables me to share some of the joy that music gives me with other people. Definitely. Do you feel like being a a public persona plays into the way you portray yourself, both like when you show up to events in person, but also with your online presence? I mean, public versus private uh, persona is, is such a salient topic you know it it just really um uh, i as a pretty neurotic person with depression and adhd i get in my head a lot and i talk down to myself a lot i'm really really harsh on myself and that is um you know a consequence of perfectionism that has sort of been imprinted on me culturally and socially throughout my life and i'm trying to unburden myself of that perfectionism now um a lot of times that perfectionism stops me from posting content or finishing a song or um talking to someone who I find, you know, uh, intimidating for, for some reason, you know? Right. Um, 
I, I think that my public persona, people perceive me as this, like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a cis white gay man, you know, that's very much my, I ident my personal identity. And I feel really comfortable in, in that box for myself, you know? Um, and I think sometimes the, uh, the trope, the, the, the negative and toxic tropes of masculinity sort of get, um, get kind of like, what's the word I'm looking for? It's almost like it's sort of put on me because of my body, you know, and it can create situations where, um, you know, I need to like work really actively to, to avoid falling further into perpetuating those negative toxic kinds of things, because it's almost like people are expecting me to show up in a certain way. Mm. And, um, even, even when I have no intention of like being, uh, you know, like aggressive or dominant or anything, you know, I don't know. I, I, I feel like, um, I feel like I got off on a bit of a, a ramble here, but what I'm trying to say is that my, my public persona, I, I do try to make myself appear stronger than I feel on the inside. You know, mm -hmm. the, the line in a thousand doves, uh, wait, no, sorry. Um, wait, which is the line where, uh, Gaga sings, um, I, what did she say? I, I cry more than I ever say. Yeah. 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 It's in a thousand yeah. doves. I cry more than I ever say. Mm. <laughs> Each time your love seems to save the day. We're going to, we're going to get busted for copyright now, right. but it, that, that line connects with me, um, in a way that, uh, in a way that I'm not often able to really express publicly. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine that being a public persona, and especially when you look at it at the intersection of like being an artist, right? Because sometimes there's like a public persona in a way where it's perhaps a little bit less abstract. But I feel like when it comes to art, like there's no subjective, there's no objective standard for like this is what makes good or bad. I mean, some people might argue that, right? But like in a lot of cases when you're putting out, for example, like you're single or sometimes like when I would be in band and I would like play a solo in the middle of like a jazz song or something, like there's something so vulnerable of like this came from the inside and I created this from nothing. It's not like I'm putting the, I'm writing an essay on the Roman Empire. You know, it's not like I'm putting together a PowerPoint. Like I'm I'm putting something that just right from the every fiber of its being is something that came from the inside and there's something so vulnerable of like I'm going to put that out into the world for people to assess and judge and appreciate or not appreciate and so I can imagine that there's a lot of vulnerability that comes with being a public persona um, and that it can maybe be challenging sometimes to not feel like you can always portray maybe like I put myself out there as being stronger than I feel like I am. Um, and that those things can be kind of challenging. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's, I, 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 I don't know. I, I feel like I wish I could speak more, uh, well, I don't know. Um, one of my ways that I'm trying to kind of 
open myself up more to just being a more open person is actually only fans and just for fans mm. <laughs> and just like letting go of like the need to conceal my body. You know, uh, I'm not trying to like add this in as some like new side hustle. Like it's really just a hobby because sex is fun and we should enjoy it, you know, right. and we should be able to like do what we want sexually and with our image and that shouldn't be a reason for people to uh you know discredit anybody you know in in other aspects of their life or any aspect of life yeah i understand that deeply more deeply than i than i could care to share right now but (laughs) um yeah i when you were mentioning that a second ago when you were like oh letting go when it comes to like content creation or like only fans or just for fans like i think there's a lot of times when i'm like just generally the concept of like taking and sending nudes. There's a lot of times where it's like when I'm in the moment with someone in person, I'm not really thinking about it, Mm -hmm. but when I'm taking a picture and I'm sending it to someone and I have an opportunity to look at the picture and like assess and nitpick little things that I wish looked a little bit different. Like it's, it's challenging, right. To, to feel like you're so fixated on, on that perfectionism. And that's something that you've brought up in a lot of different cases. Um, you know, throughout the course of this episode is like there's been multiple instances where you've mentioned feeling this pressure or this need to be or to pursue perfectionism. Um, and so I'd be curious to hear, like, do you feel like there's a pressure from your community and spaces where you're performing to perform at a certain level? Do you feel how do you feel like perfectionism plays into your overall experience as an artist? I mentioned before how socially and culturally indoctrinated I had been into the trap of perfectionism. Um, And it's something that had been communicated to me throughout my entire life as a individual psychological problem for me to unpack. Recently, thanks to Kei Horiuchi, who's an amazing DJ and is also one of the members of the Ubu Collective here in Portland, they posted um, something on their Instagram story recently. It's a website um, called uh, whitesupremacyculture.info. Very eye-grabbing URL and really, really sensitively and thoughtfully written content about these sociological phenomena that uh, structurally perpetuate white supremacy. Perfectionism is one of those things, and that was very revelatory to me. I had never conceived of perfectionism as a social and cultural, social, cultural, sociological issue. I'd always seen it as a personal issue a personal failing you know and the the quest to be you know perfectly delivered from perfectionism is a pretty self-defeating prophecy you know but seeing perfectionism through a cultural lens helped me realize that not only is perfectionism bad for me but it's bad for the people around me right and some of the very high standards that I have for myself that are really more strict and more difficult than they need to be, you know, if that seeps out into the world uh, and 
gets directed at people that I'm collaborating with because I'm like tired and cranky in a moment and something's not working correctly and it's a stressful moment in a club, you know, then all of my ambitions toward mindfulness and positivity and whatnot, you know, suddenly like they just disappear and here I am reacting habitually out of anger again. You know, I, I'm, I'm trying, uh, a lot right now, um, to continue to work on myself in a really proactive way there. Um, I think it's, uh, something that, has helped me feel better about myself and helped me be a better person. You know, mindfulness meditation is a, a personal strategy that enables me to show up in a more compassionate and empathetic and mindful way, especially like out in a public high pressure space where, you know, maybe, you know, people are performing and something is, you know, something's going wrong. There's always some, there's always something that goes wrong in, in, a, in the club, you know, it's chaotic and, and that's right. the point, you know? Um, and just letting go of the need for everything to be perfect and resting in the messiness of reality and just living in the moment is a much more forgiving and kind way to be. And, you know, the reason why I named my song impermanence, um, isn't because I'm some like perfect mindfulness guru who has everything down. I, I named that song impermanence because I wanted to remind myself to have gratitude for everything because everything is impermanent. That's mm. the idea behind it. Um, yeah, it's not because I've achieved some kind of, you know, uh, higher state of consciousness or high, higher moral ground because of it. You know, if, if anything, the more I uh, dive into it, the more I feel like I have more and more and more work to do. You know, the more you know, the more you know you don't know anything. Yeah. So I, I have a few more questions about sort of this concept of perfectionism and maybe how it intersects with mental health. But I think like before I get there, I have sort of one last question on just like generally being a public persona that you sort of touched on when you were talking about like, kindness and mindfulness and like self-improvement do you feel like as a public persona you have some sort of responsibility to our larger community as a whole i definitely do i definitely do and that really comes from my membership in queer communities um and my work in music also uh, dance music and djing um gathering in solidarity and authenticity is a really revolutionary practice, I think, for cultivating community. Um, that is the thing that I want my legacy to be, ultimately. Mm. Um, you know, I've got a lot of work to do to get to that point. <laughs> I feel like I'm very imperfectly moving in that direction, but that is, you know, my sort of higher goal for myself. And it's a very lofty and ambitious goal obviously but i think it's it's a central goal that a lot of humans share hopefully you know if you want to be a good person right. um i think uh um talking about um uh sorry can, 
Can you sort of prompt that question again? Yeah, I, I think it was just, I mean, you answered the question. I just, if you had more to say, I'd love to hear it. But just regarding like, do you feel like you have a responsibility to our community as a whole? Right, yeah, thank Like you. in the way that you show up, in the <laughs> way you interact with other people, right? Because I think sometimes there's, when you're doing a role, like someone could perhaps view being a DJ as like, I'm just there to show up, play kick-ass music, and then leave. Right. But someone could also take the approach of like, it's important to me that I'm not just doing that, but it's also a great space and people feel welcomed. And like, I'm someone someone can go to if they need something or, you know what I mean? That I'm like a welcoming presence as yeah. well. That That's kind of what I was getting. at. Right. So I, th- I think community responsibility, um, you know, there's there's a real important historical lineage of community engagement relating to queer nightlife. I think that that's a really important thing to continue. Um, dance music has uh, is something that was created by queer people and black and brown people in America. Um, that's a fact that gets lost often in the mainstream. Um, correcting that narrative is one really important element of what I do as a DJ. Um, and, uh, I think also that broader speaking more broadly about like the state of the world and politics, um, some people wrongly think that, um, dancing or raving or clubbing is about, um, excessive hedonism and escaping from, from problems. And, to, to an extent it is, but like I said earlier, for marginalized communities, the problems that they're escaping from is the wider world, right. you know? Um, there are some times where people want to stick their heads in the sand, so to speak, and just have fun instead of thinking about problems in the world and trying to do anything to fix them. Um, I'm not under some illusion that I am like, you know, some great leader figure just because I'm a DJ. But um, I think it's really important for people in cultural spaces like I am to, um, I'm not sure what I want to say, I guess, I guess to speak truth to power when it matters, you know, Mm -hmm. like right now, like the war that's happening in Palestine is really fucked up and it is breaking my heart and I don't feel like I have a lot of voice or power in the situation. Um, and I also don't have any lived experience related to the, you know, the demographics involved in this. So, um, it's, it's really, you know, hard for me to, to feel like I'm contributing anything in a positive way at all, especially like as an American where, you know, our government bears so much responsibility for all this bullshit. Um, I don't know how I'm going to figure out how to vote in the next presidential election because yikes, you know? Um, but I'm, I'm talking about it now because I'm, I, I don't think that I would be, uh, you know, doing my job as someone trying to create joy 
and liberation for my community, my queer community, that is the community I know which struggles with oppression and marginalization. And, you know, we're not free until we're all free, you know? Mm. So that's, that's where my head goes for that. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I feel like a lot of the things that you were mentioning sort of during, you know, your last answer there touches a lot on sort of the last thing that I'm sort of hoping to, to chat about here. And it's just regarding sort of mental health mm-hmm. in the context of being a persona or an icon or a DJ or, you know, what have you. Um, I think there's a lot of intersection between queer culture, nightlife, mental health, substance use. Um, and consequently as a DJ, like a lot of times there's a real, there's a heavier presence of DJs, at least I feel in like a nightlife space as opposed to something that's happening at like, in like the middle of the day. Um, and I, a lot of these things aren't necessarily by accident, right? Like queer life intersecting with nightlife or being in clubs or in sort of more underground spaces is not something that happened by accident. It was something that happened by design, both because of like societal oppression and marginalization of those communities, but also as a means to survival and being able to find community in spaces when maybe you weren't welcome to find and be in community with people who were like you in the open. And so I also know that you have been very vocal about being on a journey of sobriety, um, specifically from alcohol. Um, And I know that a lot of the work that you do is also in bars and clubs where the consumption of alcohol tends to be really central to the experience. And so um, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you feel this decision to pursue sobriety has impacted your work, if you feel it has at all. Definitely. I am really happy to be recommitted to um, alcohol sobriety. Um, it's something that I had already given up years ago. And, um, as I was working in bars and clubs over the past couple years, it kind of snuck back into my life. And what happens with me if I start to drink is, you know, one night I'll probably be fine. Another night I'll probably be fine. But eventually if I continue to have drinks here and there, eventually one night I'll start drinking and not stop. And I, it's taken me a long time to see that pattern in myself. And I know now that I don't have control over it. So I am not going to put myself in a position where I can, uh, use that substance and potentially suffer, you know, hurtful consequences from it anymore. Um, we are in Portland, so, you know, everybody smokes weed. So (laughs) I, I don't say that I'm sober. Um, but I, I feel really positive about being alcohol free. I feel very little temptation to drink ever people rarely uh you know it on the rare occasion when people are like oh can i get you a drink i just say i don't drink alcohol and then they're like oh can i get you a red bull and i'm like sure thanks you know um stuff like that uh i i find navigating um alcohol sobriety pretty easy actually Mm -hmm. um i know it's not easy for everybody but if you get used to going out to a club and not drinking and actually engaging and socializing with people and being in the moment, that's that you don't need substances to make that happen, you know? Yeah. I feel like one, like, and you answered one of the questions I was going to ask, which was if people tend to offer you drinks. I feel like one of the other questions I have is like, 
and I, I, I imagine the answer is no, but I could be wrong, um, is like, do you ever feel uncomfortable or like you're looking from the outside in when you're drinking a non-alcoholic beverage in a space where like everyone else is? I think sometimes like it can be looked at in another way where it's like sometimes when I got to the club and I'm like alone, this is specifically a thing at a bar. It's easier at a club because I can just like get on the dance floor, but at a bar, sometimes I go alone and it's like, I worry that people are like, Oh, look at this like sad guy here at the bar alone. Cause he doesn't have any friends. Sometimes I think a similar thing. I, you, I mean, I do drink. Usually I have like one or two drinks. And then after that, I'm like water and like a Red Bull. But sometimes if I'm just like drinking water or if I'm just drinking like a Red Bull, sometimes I wonder if people are like thinking things about it. Like, have you ever felt that? I used to have exactly that kind of anxiety at the gym when I first started trying to go to the gym and I had no idea what I was doing. And I thought everyone in the gym is looking at me and knows that I don't know how to work out and that I'm an idiot. Right. You know, um, I, I don't really feel that in club environments. I think that DJing actually gave me a lot of, um, gave me a lot of, uh, DJing as a job puts me in a mindset where I'm not showing up to drink and party and lose myself. I am there to take stock of the vibe of the entire crowd, the entire room as a collective, see what they're into, see how they're feeling, and choose the right music for that moment that will fulfill my um, artistic integrity and also give the crowd what they want. Right. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the like gym thing because I think sometimes I talk about that with people and I'm like, the, the reality is that no one's looking. And then right. I'm, but then I'm always like, I'm looking. Uh -huh. I do notice. Uh -huh. But I don't judge the person. Uh -huh. But I think because I do notice when it's like, I don't think that person knows what they're doing. I assume that other people also observe. But the difference is that like, I don't see that and then like judge them for it. I'm just like, oh, maybe I can just like help them out with something or they'll figure it out just like everyone else did when they first started. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but it's just like an interesting thing you bring up in the gym because I'm always saying that where I'm like, I definitely noticed. But <laughs> no one else is paying attention. I promise. If other people are noticing you, so what? Like, right. who gives a fuck? Right. Or like, stay in your lane. Worry about yourself. Yeah. Really that. You yeah. Know? And as as a DJ, that is something that's really important because sometimes, you know, you're in an environment where like the the taste of the crowd doesn't quite align with my own taste. You know, sometimes things don't quite click that way, but it's always going to be better when I stay true to myself artistically than right. try to pander to a crowd. Um, do you have spaces that you DJ in that aren't centered around alcohol consumption? Definitely. I feel like the best uh, dance events don't have alcohol at them. You know, like alcohol is the worst drug. Like it's terrible. It makes you mean and annoying, just like cocaine. You know, <laughs> it's like not cool. It's a it's a fucking buzzkill, you know, right. for 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 people who actually want to use nightlife as a vector for you know, fun and community and transcendence, you know, yeah. people can make, you know, whatever choice they want about what they want to consume as long as they're not hurting themselves or others. I think, mm -hmm. um, I think that getting way fucked up on alcohol or Coke or something is harming yourself and others, you know, because right. it's like you're poisoning the vibe, you know, not to mention yourself at that right. point, but you know, uh, 
raves have a long culture of using like, you know, uh, like LSD or Molly or ketamine or whatever to, you know, achieve some sort of altered, you know, psychedelic uh, state, you know, and if someone needs some help sort of opening that door to the transcendence of that musical experience, then sure, that's fine. You know, like let it be at a place where there's harm reduction in place, where there's staff who knows how to help people if they're, you know, overdoing it. Mm -hmm. Um, But a place where the focus is really about being able to connect with the music in such a significant way that you feel the universe kind of opening up and having a, an emotional transcendent experience of connection with everyone else on the dance floor and within yourself and with the DJ, you know, the entire, the entire point of, of this music is to, to feel that sense of communion. Right. Acid and shrooms are beautiful drugs, but I'd have a, I would have a hard time doing the way they hit me. I think I'd have a really hard time doing them at like a rave specifically acid because that lasts like eight to 10 hours, maybe something that lasts like four hours, but like eight to 10 hours of just, it's a lot of commitment, but who knows? Maybe it'll be worth trying someday. I'm very sensitive, like physically to what I put in my body. I Mm. found, so I pretty much stick with weed and I don't really do much else of anything. Um, I can't take, uh, I can't take ecstasy because of my antidepressants. It just does not work with that medication. It makes me sick. Mm. Um, Sometimes I feel like I've lost out on um, connection with other people because they prioritize connections through that, through those drugs instead Mm. of through the music. But ultimately I feel like I'm being truest to myself when I'm uh, connecting with the music in a really profound way. And whether that includes, you know, extra party favors or not, you know, like as long as you're using it in a responsible harm reduction way, I think that's okay. You know, in general, um, obviously like at a club or a bar that has, alcohol licensing and all that stuff there's it's a lot more complicated there and it's a lot more you know dangerous to yourself and to the venue to bring it into those spaces but i'm thinking about like you know a party in the middle of the woods somewhere where it's like you know experienced ravers djs community people harm reduction people um sound people lighting people coming together building something impermanent but beautiful, creating transcendent ecstatic memories and taking that home and integrating that into the rest of your life so that you just have some sense of joy in this awful fucked up world we live in. Right. So like Burning Man? Nah. <laughs> I was going to say, there's a lot of controversy around it. <laughs> so I wasn't sure. Like, it was kind of sounding like that, but there's a lot of controversy around it. So I was like, I don't know. But some people find that at Burning Man. Right. Um, Burning Man's not for me. Right. It's too hot. Right, right. Well, I just have a couple sort of closing questions for you. Um, I'm really appreciative to have had you here. Um, it really means a lot. You're not only the first guest that I have, you know, here on my podcast, but our first gay icon. So I'm, <laughs> I'm really excited and honored to have had you. Um, so I think before we close out, I just have a couple questions. The first is, how can someone best support you as an artist? 
Best way to support me as an artist is follow all my socials, buy my music from Bandcamp, and um, you can pay me money on OnlyFans too. <laughs> right, right. Okay. And those links will definitely be available, uh-huh. so that you'll have no excuse but to get to it. <laughs> Um, and second is, uh, where can someone find you if they want to hear your work? www.silversound.gay is my website, not .com because that's too straight. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's my official website and I have a section with all my links to okay. everything. If it's not there, it's fake. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. And then my last question is just, did you have a good time? Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah. It was super fun. And I'm really excited to hear this come out. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Really happy to have you. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>